Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Eric. Hey, Mary Angela. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It is January 13th. Holy cow. We are into 2022. We're into 2022, (laughs) and it's been kind of a wacky start. I think most people would agree that their New Year's Eve plans got canceled or changed or pivoted or yep. mm -hmm. Yep. Yep, we were definitely people whose New Year's Eve plans got changed <laughs> and pivoted. Well, uh, and for obvious reason, yes. it seems like th- this is the the season of COVID. Yeah. Once I've, again. You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't hardly know anybody who had COVID. Somebody had COVID, it was like, oh my gosh, this person has COVID, and that seems so rare. But honestly, right now, pretty much everybody I know has either had it recently or has it currently. Omicron is upon us. Yeah. And I think with that, the mandates, Philly mandates for vaccination cards to enter bars and restaurants is now in full effect. Yep. Not that we have actually stepped out yet to go into any bars or restaurants, but... Uh, apparently that is a legit thing now. Yeah. Good news, though. Silver lining, if there can be a silver lining in this situation. Everything I've read talks about how while this is a very contagious variant, you really are limited to a, a short illness um, and it's not very serious. Granted, we are not scientific experts. We are not. Yes, I'll but. say that. I'm saying this is just from what I'm reading. Everything I'm reading is talking right. about how this you know, runs hard and fast and then doesn't. I guess that's good. You know, whereas Delta was, you know, very contagious, but also knocked you down pretty hard. So, yeah. I mean, glad to say that, like, that's not the case. But yeah, no, I don't know if y'all are paying attention, but just a couple of days ago, I think we hit a record high in the United States, like one million cases in one day. So that's insane. Yeah. But yeah, hospitalizations aren't like what it was at the beginning. Correct. Yeah. So and that's why we haven't locked down. I kept looking at it and being like, if these are the highest numbers we've ever had, how are we all still open? Well, because so many people are vaccinated, it, it's not overwhelming the system, which is what we were hoping for with the vaccinations. So yeah. there well, you go. It's been, I'd say, overall, though, a, a, a relatively quiet new year and a quiet start. Yeah. Yeah. So far, just kind of slowly edging back into the daily grind here. Yeah. One of the things I think we wanted to change up here a little bit. For the new year. Yes. New year, new segment. New year, new, new segment. Whoop. We'll have to come up with like a little, <laughs> I don't know, a little a little soft intro for that. Sure. That would be cool. Uh, but the segment, what is the name of the segment? Well, Tell the us. name of the segment, I thought, you know, since like I'm a sciencey kind of guy and... and most people think that like I work for the CIA or something. I don't know what, but <laughs> no. I thought it'd be kind of cool to incorporate a little scientific factoid of the day. So this day in science? This day in science, science, science. <laughs> awesome. So what's going on today, this day, January 13th in science? January 13th, this day in science in 2015, a team creates first responsive human muscle tissue in a lab. Whoa. I was thinking maybe it would go a little bit further back than 2015, but, you know, okay, no, modern science is totally cool. So he, so real muscle, read that again to me? So it's a team creates first responsive human muscle tissue in a lab. A team led by a PhD associate professor in biomedical engineering at Duke University produced the first lab-grown fully responsive human muscle tissue. The tissue, which was created from a small culture of human cells, reacts identically to natural human muscle tissue and contracts when exposed to electrical currents, chemical stimulants, and pharmaceuticals. Wow. So that would be for like somebody who had like muscle or tissue damage from a fire or something or like part of their arm cut out. I think the idea behind it would be having a means to either test therapies that you couldn't otherwise say test on a human being, that that would be representative enough that you could do small laboratory experiments, test certain conditions, and then draw conclusions from that to say, hey, maybe we should try looking at this kind of therapy in humans. 
Okay, so not so, so much to like use it on a human, but to use it to determine mutants, what could be. No, we're not looking to create used. mutants okay. here. It's, it's all. Well, to... I mean, you know, prosthetics. Like, you know, maybe that's the next step in prosthetics. <laughs> I know. Um, but that's awesome. So that was this day in science. Yay! This day in science. Woo! Thank you. So, um, yeah, looking forward to our next next show when we have whatever happened on that day in science. How fun. Um, what's going on in the neighborhood? Let's talk about what's going on in the neighborhood. Well, there's been uh, a number of things that have transpired within the past few weeks. Some tragic things, actually, as a matter of fact. One of those being the, um, the fire that occurred in Fairmount. Yeah. You had eight kids among 12 people who, who were killed in that fire. Twenty six people altogether living in that home. Yeah. Not it was it, now to be specific. It wasn't one house. It was two apartments. Right. But between the two apartments, there were twenty six people living there. And it was started by apparently what it was one of the children playing with a lighter. Right. Is that what the story is? Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I I didn't read what they finally found. They everything I was reading the last I was reading about it was that the the Christmas tree had caught fire. Um, and then it went up, and that was kind of the start. But I, I didn't read what had happened. Did you read somewhere that it was? I, th- I think I saw a newscast that talked about it, mm. and then there was a spokesperson from the the city yeah. who was like, "Don't be quick to point the finger at the housing authority here. We're doing everything we can to investigate." And there was concerns about so many people that were living in one spot. Right, and the fact that there were, in fact, eight smoke detectors within the whole building and carbon monoxide detectors that were all functional in May when the Housing Authority did their inspection, but by December were not functional. So then what happened, because you know when a smoke detector loses battery life, you know it, right? It chirps forever before it stops chirping. And that's your cue to be like, I need to replace the battery in this. So either they were faulty and didn't chirp, or they chirped and they just took the battery out and never replaced it. Like it's, you definitely need to get to the bottom of that. I'm definitely not pointing any fingers. I just think that, I think the housing authority, if they're going to have that many people living in house, should probably check up on things like that a little more frequently than, you know, once a year. Well, it's a tragic loss of life it and is. many prayers and thoughts to the Absolutely. families and friends of the those who were lost. An interesting little factoid uh, for folks who are preparing for their taxes this year. Note that Venmo, PayPal, and Cash Apps will be reporting payments of $600 or more to the IRS this year. So Biden has made it mandatory and I just received from my tax person a notice saying that anything, any statements, any transactions, digital transactions that you have, you're going to have to submit those for tax purposes. Now, things like sending money to your friends and family, that's not going to count against you. Right. It's business purchases. It's business, right? right? So it's, you know, folks who are running small businesses who are using digital platforms to receive payments for so yeah, again, it's 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 primarily for businesses. But well, that's not too surprising. I mean, it always kind of I I thought that's the way that went um, because you know I always use PayPal for my companies, uh, my theater companies, donations. Right for a long time, it all came through PayPal. Um, it doesn't anymore. Now it comes through Fractured Atlas, but it used to, and I always had to report that. I mean, that was income for the company, so I had to, you know, pay taxes on that. So. I'm I'm interested in were were people not doing that was that was I not did I not have to do that did I pay taxes when I didn't need to like all those years like I it's a little gray to me like I don't understand so payment apps were previously required to send users form 1099-k if their gross income exceeded 20,000 or they had 200 separate transactions within a calendar year. So that could be Uh, another piece hmm. of that, right? Yeah. So it really is targeting those folks. But keep in mind for for individuals who, say, get paid under the table and utilize things like Cash App, those folks are – it's another way for folks who, who say, can't afford to pay taxes. They're going to get pinged. It's. It sounds like only if it's an expense, because if it's a friend and family transaction, how do you know what is or isn't? For example, I get paid 
for our phone bill through people who are on our our phone bill plan through Venmo. They send me. I mean, you know, right. our own kid does that. That's and, how he and pays what his if phone you're bill. Doing every business month. and you're 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 calling your business partners or your business transactions friend and family. I don't know how that how's that right. Work? Yeah, sorry, we're not trying to give anybody ideas on how to skirt the IRS, <laughs> but you know, it ju- it just seems like a flawed system but we'll we'll see how that goes it's a it's, work it's in progress we'll see how it works out for to know. um yeah 2022 and then i this isn't really community but i was sharing this with you earlier i just came across this cute little article with 100 ways to slightly improve your, your life without <laughs> really trying so mm. it's just filled with like little one-liners and cute little ditties but i'll spare the audience here what's on your radar in the neighborhood well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, a couple things. There has been a few posts in the neighborhood group involving um, the crossing guard at uh, which which school was it? I want to say it was Henry Houston. I might be wrong. Anyway, um, somebody took a picture of a crossing guard sitting in their car. And instead of being out, like, crossing children. But what was also not in the picture were children and it's cold, like super cold these days. So do you think crossing guards should have to stand outside in the freezing cold if there are no children crossing? And this person was trying to be like, you know, this person just sits there and he isn't doing what they're paid to do and really like kind of up in arms about it. Then the neighborhood came to the defense of this crossing guard and was like, I am sorry, but we see that crossing guard every day. And that crossing guard talks to everyone and that crossing guard definitely does their job. And at this very moment, you are photographing this crossing guard enjoying heat in their car and they will definitely get out of the car when it is time to cross a child. But I don't see a child waiting to cross the street. Why are we making a big deal about this? And it kind of goes to that conversation we had in the last episode where I said, I don't understand why there are so many people in our neighborhood who who just want to like come for other neighbors. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Does this person didn't ask? You know, if you're really that concerned, ask this person, hey, what are you doing? Are you staying in here because you're freezing and you're going to step out when there's a child present? Like, why did you need to go to social media right away and be like, look at this person taking city money to be a crossing guard and not crossing any children? And I'm just like, wow, I think we have better things to talk about. I think we have better things to worry about. And I just want to say that um, I thought it was really empowering and awesome that so many neighbors came to the defense of this crossing guard, that they all were like, we know this person. I don't think I ever saw the actual original poster of the post acknowledge their mistake, acknowledge that they were in the wrong. But I did see a lot of people come to the defense of this person. And that made me happy to be like, hey, cool. But also... This person's legit. They're a contributor to the community. It's it, it was freezing. <laughs> like you're allowed to sit in your car if there are no children. You don't have to stand out in the that freezing too. cold. That too. I mean, like, I come on, that's crazy. Who's gonna be judging about what? Whatever. Anyway, the other thing that came on my radar, which was something I have always wanted to know, and finally found out. You know, uh, the ruins that are at the corner of. It's like where Crescent Valley Road becomes Emlyn, and where, um, or C- Crescent. Valley? Yeah. And then Crusham Road intersect right there. You know, so there's the corner of Crusham and the corner of Crusham Valley. And it's right there where Crusham Valley is about to become Emlyn going through Mount Airy. Okay. And there are the ruins that sit right there. There's like an entrance to the park. You can kind of walk. There's like a hiking trail. And there's the, the those ruins. We filmed at them with Casa Buena a hundred times. It's our favorite ruins right there. On the uh, okay, I know where you're talking. It's it's right after you cross over Germantown Avenue, you're on Cresham Valley Road. Correct. And then you're coming up almost as if you're heading towards the Allen's Lane train station. Yes. Um, I have always wanted to know what that was. Why that, you know, it's there. We like it. It's really cool. It's a great photo op kind of place. It mm-hmm. gets very overgrown in the summer, but in the winter you can really see it. And um, it's really neat. And I had no idea what it was. Well, it turns out that it is the last standing remaining structure of a complex that was known as Buttercup Cottage. Buttercup Cottage. Yes, Buttercup Cottage. And Tell me about Buttercup Cottage. It was a summer retreat for young women. Um, Basically, women who worked down in the factories in the city 
could come in the summertime for a week or two and spend their time at Buttercup Cottage. This was considered, you know, the countryside up here <laughs> in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And Buttercup well, I'm sure Cottage that was very much true. Was right. Was a retreat for um, these uh, working class women who needed a break from factory life. The cottage itself has burnt to the ground a long time ago. Uh, but this structure that you can see today is the last remaining standing structure. And it actually was the barn. It was part of the barn complex. Because what the women did when they came up here wasn't just all like rest and relaxation. Um, it was a lot of farming. And, you know, basically countryside kind of work that they did mm -hmm. to help maintain the property. And Buttercup Cottage also produced you know, I guess produce, Buttercups. no <laughs> produce. And, you know, they had cows, so there was milk, you know what I mean? Like they were serving the community as a functioning farm. Okay. So um, yeah. So that's what it was. Interesting. And it's, you know, of course, historically, I don't want to say preserved because it's not, but it's uh, uh, what, do you, no. what do you call it? Protected. It's historically <laughs> protected, which is why nobody's built on it. Um, it's why that's where the entrance, there's some hiking paths where you can go into the park there, into the Wissick and you can get so, in there that way. Historically protected how does that work because it's it's not like it's annexed off you know folks can freely roam through that correct so, so then how is it it means it can't be developed on so it's historically it. protected which basically means if you're going to develop on it you have to develop either like a memorial to what this was or some kind of recreation of what this was, or turn into like you know Ooh, a, a, a recreation of Buttercup Cottage. I mean, I think that would be really cool. Quite honestly. Be, that actually would be. You'd have cool. to clear a, a very large part of the Wissahickon right there um, to you know sort of recreate it because it's all grown up and and everything there now. But yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that would be kind of great. Who doesn't need a summer retreat? <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's kind of awesome. There is a great YouTube documentary. That was put together by the Friends of the Wissahickon. Mm -hmm. um, if you search for the Friends of the Wissahickon YouTube channel, you can find the documentary. It's about 11 minutes long. It tells the full history of Buttercup Cottage. And uh, it's it's really very neat. I, you know, when this came across my radar, I, of course, did kind of a deep dive into it to see what it was about. And that's when I found that little documentary. And it was really good. I suggest you check it out. It's awesome. And if you're ever looking for a real cool, funky, hip place to take some cool, artsy pictures... That's oh yeah, go. no doubt. If you're looking for like headshots, if you're an actor, or if you're a musical artist and you just want a nice backdrop for like some promo pics, that's the place to go. Yeah, it's the prime it's... spot in the in the in the cooler months because it does get very overgrown in the summer. <laughs> in the summer, you gotta like weed whack to get in there. But um, but yeah, in the cooler months, it's really really. Prime and spot. speaking of series, really quick, I just had to mention for for those who are like into Star Wars, the new Bobo Fett series that is on is pretty smashing. <laughs> I'm a fan. I think it's what been three episodes so far. Yeah, that's good. It's so, it's worth it. If you got the cables, I highly recommend checking Disney it Plus, out. That's what it's on. Disney Plus. Okay, so. Main topic for today. Yeah. What are we talking about? Well, right around Thanksgiving, we, the arts community, had kind of a, a big loss. Um, you know, around the new year, we all know we, we lost Betty White, and I would love to be able to talk all about Betty White on this episode because. And we lost Bob Saget this we, week. We did. We did. Um, and that's really unfortunate um, on both fronts. But I want to talk about Stephen Sondheim. Yes, Stephen Sondheim. Because as a theater person, I mean, you know, that man had a huge impact uh, on my life from a very early age. And the more I found out about him, you know, surrounding his death, of course, all kinds of things come out. And I actually learned some things I didn't know. Like, I really thought I kind of knew everything, and I really didn't. And through that process, I realized, wow, I have been genuinely impacted by this particular artist for many more years than I thought you mm -hmm. know i mean i'm talking from like single digits age <laughs> from like eight years old um uh, i mean he was an american playwright he was but you know more than that he also was a great inspiration to a lot of people um mm -hmm. he wrote letters to people there's an entire instagram called letters from sondheim and it's photos of that people post of pictures they've received uh, of letters they've received from Stephen Sondheim. And he always wow. typed them out. 
Um, and they were always answers to questions or, you know, to to compliments, you know, that people would give or questions people had. And he would take his time and respond. Or sometimes if he would see something that he thought, you know, was worthy of a letter, like, you know, he needed to comment on it, he would send a letter. Wow. Um, and that's kind of amazing, <laughs> right? That somebody wanted to take their, their time to, to inspire other artists and to help. But it makes sense to me because he got his start being mentored by one of the Broadway greats. Yep, that's and, right. Uh, tell us who that was. You, you clearly know. Off the top of my head, no. Oscar Hammerstein of Thank Rogers you. and Hammerstein or Hammerstein. I don't really know. Potato, potato there. But yeah, like, I mean, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein did everything. Mm-hmm. And they were definitely the top of their game. And so to be taken under the wing of such a profound composer and lyricist and you know, playwright in his own regard, that's kind of huge. Uh, and so yeah. it it makes sense to me that he would want to pay that forward, that he would want to inspire others and to help and write letters and do the things that he did. Well, yeah, when you amass the kind of career that he did, I, I think it kind of comes with the territory. So we were talking about this prior to the break. I had mentioned there was an NPR podcast, Fresh Air, Mm-hmm. there's a three-part series that they dedicated to Sondheim because there's so much content that they had. They're like, we got to do this in three parts. So the first two episodes, which, by the way, is by Terry Gross, who broadcasts out of Philadelphia, she has several interviews with him, and she talks about them and then plays them. And it's really interesting to hear how Stephen Sondheim talks. He's very technical, highly technical, you know, as a composer. And it was one of the things that was interesting to me. Terry had asked him a question like, do you ever, say, go out to a venue to get up and, and say, jam? Do you jam? Do you, um, uh, what, what's the term? You're, you're ad-libbing. You're, you're just playing Improv. off the cuff. Mm-hmm. Improv, yeah. And he, he was like, no. Never. I would never do that. Everything <laughs> comes from a point of view that's it's it's been highly polished and and everything is written note for note. That is how he plays and how he thinks. Highly technical. And what's interesting about his music, and he talks about in these interviews, how he really writes for the song. Whereas if you think about there's some people you listen to and you hear their music and you're like right away, oh, that's that artist. And when you listen to the song, there's sort of this groove, a, a fundamental cadence that carries the entire song. But Sondheim, he writes for the words. So the emotion behind the words, which it shifts throughout even a, a single song, you'll feel that dynamic, that shift. And it's just one of the things that like really struck me when I first saw, it was Sweeney Todd. It was the first of his works I've ever seen, which that's a good one. Honestly, that was actually the first work of his I'd ever seen. I was 10 when I saw that. So for anyone who's not familiar, Sweeney Todd, it's it's a really dark story. It's about a, a guy who was a barber set in London in like the 1800s. And Based he on was... a novel, actually. It's one of those like those Victorian dark novels. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But basically, this guy gets imprisoned by a judge who has a fondness for his wife. So he gets him out of the way so he could pursue his wife and then ends up taking on his, his daughter as his ward. And so he gets out of jail and he comes back completely changed man. He's out for vengeance. He wants to kill people. But when you see the play, the music that Sonham writes, it's, it's all over the place. It's yes, there's definitely elements of dark and disturbing and gore, but there's lots of light satirical moments and he really captures that in the feel of the music and it's like whoa and they're just amazingly written songs it's true it's true i wonder if he learned sort of that but it you know in two experiences so you know we mentioned that he mentored under hammerstein and then he actually wrote the lyrics to west side story which means he worked hand in hand with leonard bernstein Mm mm-hmm uh, and to write lyrics for music as powerful as Bernstein's, like that's amazing. But it's also, you know, he, he as you mentioned, wrote lyrics 
to match the music, right? Because he didn't come with the lyrics and then Bernstein wrote the the songs. You know, Bernstein had a very clear score and a very clear thematic feel to the whole thing. Now you've got to put this drama, these lyrics to it. And, you know, here comes Stephen Stonheim to do that. So, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, those experiences are what sort of lent him to, to realize that, yeah, writing writing for the song instead of writing the song to fit the lyrics was was really the recipe for uh, success. When you look at his works, right, across the spectrum, he has some really kind of all over the place stuff. <laughs> so so just briefly, can you go through his discography? Because, sure. you know, I'm familiar with, obviously, we mentioned Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. West Side Story. Uh, well, West Side Story was, he wrote the lyrics he for wrote that. The lyrics he wrote for the lyrics for Gypsy. Then there's Into the Woods. Well, yeah. So we're, gosh, that's way down the list. So, yes. you know. After being a lyricist, then he decided to start writing, you know, full things. So he, um, his first big one was in 1962, and it was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that show was a wild success uh, for Zero Mistel. He was the original um, on Broadway. And, I mean, it's a show that, gosh, I've seen a thousand times. It it still plays. <laughs> it still plays well. It's it's It's, I would consider it like... Campy Broadway at its best. What's one of your least favorite Sondheim plays? So, interesting you should mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to win any friends with this statement, but I'm not a fan of company. (laughs) I am not a fan of company. Company is a relationship play, and it's kind of all over the place without a real clear storyline or plot. It's like vignettes of... Of different, I mean, it, it's it's it is a, a through story, but it's I just I don't like it. I guess I don't like the subject matter. I don't like the way it's presented. I don't like the songs. They don't really do anything for me. Well, it's really interesting you bring that up because there's a segment of interviews with folks who had worked with Sondheim, and one of them was uh, oh Stephen Colbert. Yeah. So Colbert was being interviewed by Terry Gross, and he talked about his experience where he actually had Sondheim on his show and interviewed him and even went to the lengths of doing a parody of Here Come the Clowns or In Come the Clowns. What's the song? <laughs> Send in the Clowns. Send in the Clowns. <laughs> As we all can tell, my husband is not a Sondheim theater person. I am not a Sondheim <laughs> <okay>. theater person. <laughs> it's all right. I Send appreciate in the Sondheim, yes, that's fine. but not to the lengths that I know <laughs> all the minute details. Sure. Just, just giving you a hard time. Yes. Send yeah. in the Clowns. So Send in the Clowns and... Colbert does a parody off of it to really answer the question, you know, where are the clowns? (laughs) But from that interview, there was this discussion about, oh, Colbert, he should he should do, you know, like a Sondheim production. But he's like, I I don't have the time in my schedule. Then he got a personal letter from Sondheim saying your voice is perfect for singing. I want you to do a show. And then he was like, "I, I can't turn that down. Yeah. So he did a production of Company. Yes, I know. <laughs> and I yes. think Lin Manuel also did, or either in the same, or was it different? He did a different Sondheim production. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure about that piece of the story, but I know there was a revival of Company, and yes, um, Stephen Colbert was in it, and it's nice. It's not a terrible show. I, it's just not my favorite. He has so many other ones that I consider so good. Um, Honestly, my favorite Sondheim show is, again, one that I'm probably not going to win a lot of friends with. But I really, really, really love Sunday in the Park with George. Really? I really do. I've always liked it. I saw a bootleg of it with Bernadette Peters when I was, gosh, probably like 12 or 13 years old. Um, My stepbrother had the album. I knew every song forward and backwards. It It was the first show of his that had a lot of like tongue-twisting, fast-moving stuff in it. And that was the thing about I didn't like. So in the park with George, it really is centered around this artist who's, he was was a 19th century artist, American artist, who had this, it's specifically about this painting. That everybody has seen. If we showed you a picture of the painting. Yeah, you'd be like, oh, I know that. It's just a bunch of people hanging out in a park. (laughs) And 
the the music when you listen to it it's i think it's designed to reflect the mind of the artist mm-hmm. and it's just all over the place it's very well also the style in which the artist painted so he was one of the first painters that that really brought impressionism yeah. was putting the little dots together to make the full picture mm-hmm. right that was that was a very new thing at the time of this artist and now of course we know it was like a whole segment of art that we talk about um, and there's a lot of songs in this musical that that feel very much like that, you know, that that have that that movement. And it's the first musical that I remember there being kind of a very difference between a, a very big difference between Act One and Act Two. Hmm. Um, for me, as a as a kid, seeing theater and being like, oh, a, a story doesn't, you know, after intermission doesn't have to be the true continuation of the story we were telling in Act One. It can be you know, completely moving in a new direction, a complete flip right. to another side. Um, and I found that really fascinating. Plus, and I didn't loved... the original Broadway production have Mandy Patinkin, Patinkin in it? absolutely. Yes. So Mandy Patinkin, for those who don't re- uh, know yeah. the name, he's the guy who was in Princess Bride. Yes, Inigo Montoya. Inigo Montoya, but also a great Broadway actor. Yes, He's indeed. been in a lot of things. Has an incredible voice. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he plays. Sounds like he plays George. Likes I, think the, I think the artist's name is Surratt, right? George Surratt. Yes. Kind of name? Um, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's who he plays. And yes, I definitely have had a thing for Mandy Patinkin <laughs> since way back, way back. But I digress. Um, another show of his that I really like that I think is really funny that um, schools, when they do it, only do act one uh, is Into the Woods. So if you see any school production of Into the Woods, I promise you, you will only see Act One because Act One is the happy part of the story, right? It's funny. It's these fairy tales and they're all uh, these fairy tale characters and they're all going off to get lost in the woods. And then Act Two, in true Sondheim fashion, is reality setting in Mm -hmm. the reality of what happens to these characters on the other side of the woods. Uh, And I love that. I think that's. An amazing way to tell a story uh, and the music from that is so very very good as well uh, one that's very I would say obscure most people have never heard of have you ever heard of assassins no so assassins started on uh, off-broadway it was an off-broadway show it was not a broadway musical and you know it had its you know fair 76 performances and reviews were kind of back and forth some people were like why in the world is this a thing and other people were like this was great mm-hmm. and then it kind of you know when it sort of stepped off of of you know the broadway stage or off broadway stage i should say and regional theaters got a hold of it and smaller theaters got a hold of it it started to develop this kind of cult following hmm. there are people in the theater community who either absolutely love assassins to no end and it's like their favorite show i know several of them um or it's the other side where they're like, yeah, no, I want to beat this play with a hammer and <laughs> smash it to pieces because I don't know why it is. But it's mm-hmm. it's a very interesting concept. The concept involves um, taking a look at either would-be assassins, people who wanted to be but were unsuccessful, or people who actually attempted assassinations on presidents. Um, you've got uh, John Hinckley's in there. You've got... So they each have like a little sonnet or something? Or how does it work? Yeah. um, Well, I haven't actually seen a production of Assassins, believe it or not. Um, I've heard the music. Yeah, I know. I've heard the music. uh, And I've seen a lot of pictures of it. And people really like it. But but yeah, I've, I've never actually seen it. But I know just from the music that it's, you know, it's kind of telling everyone's story. It's, you know, again, this concept of vignettes that sort of take you through each of these assassins story and and the people wow. that you know contributed and the, the and how it, it worked out and it it's a very in, interesting topic first of all it kind of plays to this whole sort of dark side that Sondheim has where he likes to look at the sort of you know evil inside situation mm-hmm. and we've seen that with a few different shows of his um and so that kind of makes sense to me. Uh, I think it's really underappreciated. I would love to see a full staged production of it at some point. It is definitely on my bucket list. 
it's not done very often or I definitely would have seen it by now. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah, it's it's um I I definitely recommend you know if it if it comes around give give it a minute cuz it's uh it's definitely worth it. Well, um, if y'all out there have any thoughts or feelings about Sondheim, if you got uh, a favorite Sondheim piece of your own or have an opinion about Sondheim, you can share it with us. By emailing us at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at what do you know about that, all one word. And you can DM us and, and let us know what you think. We would love to hear some feedback. We really, really would. This is episode seven for us. Uh, we're plugging away here, and we're really looking to get some listeners who are actually interested and care about what's on G-Town Radio. So we're happy to share your thoughts and opinions on the air. So please hit us up. Yeah, tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about, topics, what's going on in the neighborhood, something we can, uh, can bring up. Awesome. And coming up next, we've got our musical guest, Jacopo, so please stay tuned. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. All right, everyone, so welcome back uh, for our segment of... Who are the musicians in your neighborhood? Who are the musicians in our neighborhood, Eric? Well, this afternoon we are joined by our good friend Jacopo. Please introduce yourself. If you Hello, everyone. AG Town Radio. This is Jacopo De Nicola, and I'm excited to be talking about things today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so, you for being here. Yes. So where are you coming from, Jacopo? Right now, uh, my house is five minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> So you're in the neighborhood. Yeah, you are in the neighborhood. I am one of the neighborhood musicians. Uh, No, originally I come from Italy. Um, I lived, uh, was born in the center in Tuscany near Florence, but I lived in Torino, in the northwest for most of my life. So uh, I would say that's my hometown, I guess, at this point. And then I moved here in the early 2000s, and uh, I've been here ever since. Wow. wow. Like so 20 years. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost, yes. yeah. So was Philly your first stop? No, no. I moved to San Francisco. And then um, I stayed there three and a half years and then moved to Delaware, uh, Newark, Delaware. Oh. Uh, because I just <laughs> wanted to experience a life in a big city mm-hmm. after San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and, <Not bump. laughs> and then, you know, I downsized to Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> Yeah, so how did you get involved in music? Have you been playing music your whole life? I've been playing music my whole life. I I started when I was 13, and I started as a bass player. So I took lessons. Um, I I don't know if, like, many bass players start like that. Like, you know, the... Nobody wants to play the bass, so they want the guitar, all they want the guitars, and then some guy, somebody's got to play the bass. Mm-hmm. And so that was my thing. There was a bass in a corner, and people said, why don't you play that? You know, <laughs> guitar, we're good, you don't know how to do anything, so why don't you play that? And so I started playing this bass, and I was pretty bad. So I took uh, lessons for many years, and then I became better and better, and then I started playing in bigger bands and professionally. And uh, I played, you know, for a good decade, and then... Uh, some of the big projects that I had going on kind of fell apart for reasons that uh, had nothing to do with the merit of the project. And so eventually I got sort of disenchanted and I said, you know what, and I'll drop, I dropped it. And uh, I was idle musically for a few years doing other things. And then eventually I picked up a guitar and started writing my own songs all of a sudden. And then I decided that was like, you know, two, three years before coming to the United States. And so I, I wrote some songs and then I came to the United States and discovered the open mic uh, reality and that's what like ushered me into like a more professional playing again this time as a singer a songwriter and a guitar player and I've been doing that ever since uh, with the kazoo edition that everybody knows me for <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool that is really cool I d- did want to ask because you mentioned there was a block of time that you weren't playing and then you started picking music back up again. Was there a, like a trigger event or was it just like an epiphany or? That was a, that's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, in those years, you know, these old things are like a little bit blended together. So it was not like a clear separation, you know, but I practiced yoga for many years. So when I stopped playing professionally, I started teaching yoga after many years of practice. And then I was doing sculptures 
at the same time and then and so then I focus more on that uh, and then I mean the a change in life experience was I going to the um, to the to Egypt where I, I you know I got invited to uh, to be a yoga teacher for room and board and it's like you know you have to do one hour a day teaching yoga on the Red Sea at sunset oh wow and, oh, how awful. we can that give you room and board and it's like, <laughs> let me think terrible. about it yeah uh, yes, yes. yes. So <laughs> I stayed three months and you know when I came back I don't know I started writing songs so that was that for me was the th- thing it didn't have anything to do with the music really but uh, sounds spiritual trigger, yeah it triggered like I had like a very beautiful ex- some beautiful experiences down there I went to the Sinai mountain and, and stuff like that so I don't know if something activated again the music uh, and then And then I started writing so many songs that I said, at some point, I got to do something with this, you know. And then I recorded uh, some DIY albums back there. And then when I came back here, then I started recording like official albums. And in San Francisco, I got good traction uh, before I moved. And then so I was playing with like a five piece band in San Francisco. And uh, so I was getting like traction there. And then, I, you know. Uh, I said, like, yeah, I moved to Newark, Delaware. <laughs> That's like a to, downshift, for, big time. <laughs> for, for the for the big dream, you know? Yeah. yeah. Some people moved to Nashville, I moved to Newark, Delaware. And yeah. I, it didn't really pan out there, but uh, that actually brought me to Philadelphia. So I'm happy that I'm here. And mm. I, I really like Philadelphia the most, much better than San Francisco, really. It's a weird town. I've been out there before. Yeah. It's just weird. But, well, so yeah. that would, would be my question is, Why San Francisco? Like why was well, that I the moved, first place like, you went? Well, I moved uh, for love. So mm-hmm. that's why San Francisco. There we go. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like there's a song in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like a, a, I actually moved, uh, there's a, there's quite a, uh, you know, romantic story. But like I did the Camino de Santiago. I don't know if you guys know what it is. It's like this pilgrimage in the north of Spain. That was a life-changing event that in 2005, Uh, and that's where I met love. And then that's why I decided after a year to come over here. And yeah. I have to say the U.S. had never been on my radar. I'm more like Mexico and Jamaica <laughs> and <laughs> India or sure. whatever type of guy. But uh, I landed in the United States. And so and San Francisco was a good landing spot, you know, even though it's a city that, uh, you know, went down pretty quickly when I was there. It was like completely unaffordable. And now it's like, it's unrecognizable. Friends mm-hmm. and family there, like, you know, are just like, oh my God. Yeah. So like, I'm really happy. You know, San Francisco felt like a city that had plateaued and was decaying artistically. Mm-hmm. Whereas Philadelphia feels like a city that is just, just starting to rediscover itself and, and its full potential. So it's exciting to be in a place where uh, things are actually going up and not down, you know? Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Even po- people are not very aware of that here, but like, <laughs> I can tell you, you're good. <laughs> yes. We have a lot of diversity. We always ask people questions about what do they like about being musicians in Philadelphia? That's one of my favorite questions to ask. And they always say the diversity of music. Yep. And so that really fits with what you're saying is that we're, you know, Philadelphia is really very much discovering itself and sort of, you know, a little bit of rebirth because, you know, of course, back in the day, We were very well known for R&B and, you know, a lot. But now there's just a lot more yeah, diversity yeah. No, I mean, of like, music in here. In San Francisco, it felt like we, I went to these open mics, man. It was it was harsh. Like It was like uh, the, I used to go play at the Hotel Utah. They had like 60, 70 people on the list. And you Ugh. got one song. Wow. Yeah. Right? And then I would say 58 of those were like, you know, white guys with guitars. In uh-huh. the, in, uh, yeah. And, it, and it became dang so when i got on stage people say thank god you know like i mean it's like it's not i'm a white guy with the guitar but like a little different you know so like it's sure. uh, so um so yeah whereas coming here you really get like a, a taste of pretty much everything there's like from you know like uh, in south philly i was stayed in south philly so there's there's punk scene and singer songwriter and you know hip-hop r&b whatever like there's all sorts of things and now i've been playing all open mics you know and then the scene And there's so much and it's just, and then there's also so much mixing, which makes it even more interesting, you know, than, uh, than just like, it's no specific genre, just people of all walks of life that join forces and come up with some kind of cool project and, and everything. Let so, their powers combine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How would you describe your music? So I eventually came up with the Italian gypsy folk. 
uh, as a description of my, of my music, mostly because, uh, so I'm Italian, and definitely for, for what, like regarding the lyrics, I definitely tap into the Italian cantautori tradition, which is like singer-songwriters from the 60s, 70s, 80s, like kind of politically, social, socially, and romantically uh, leaning, you know, lyricists. And then influences, I use the word gypsy because I consider my music a little bit of a kind of vagrant, uh, you know, like I touch many genres and many styles, even though the Balkan and then South American and some, some kind of like uh, Middle Eastern a little bit are prevalent in, in the things. But I grew up as a goth listening to New Wave, uh, Death Metal, not Death Metal, like uh, what's uh, I don't even remember anymore, but it's like, it's like uh, what's like a Death Style, like Slayer, those like, uh, yeah. it's like a trash metal or stuff like that. Yeah. Know, I was listening to, uh, you know, New Wave, Goth was my, my thing, but I also listened to that stuff. So that stuff really bleeds into what I do heavily. And then, so I don't know, I call it Gypsy in the sense that I, I it's, Leaves a little bit everywhere, but doesn't belong anywhere as the gypsy. But I got a lot of, you know, sometimes pushback for the use term of use gypsy. You know, some people feel it's offensive or, you know. Oh, no. But see, I when it comes to art, right? I feel like I feel like that's very applicable, especially the way you're describing it. Yeah. You know, as that it it, it is. You know what? What did you say? You said it, it's part of everything, but belongs yeah, I mean, to nothing. You know, it, like, you know, like it, it assimilates yeah. or moves into different yes. realities, but doesn't really belong. Like the gypsy do. Like, right. I mean, like I, and yeah. I know gypsy in Italy. We have real gypsy. I haven't seen gypsies here. Right. I mean, I know people of Roma descent, but you don't have, you know, hundreds of gypsies of all the strata. I mean, the gypsy society is so uh, so fascinating. It's a caste system. It's like it comes from India. They have all sorts of like different castes in their society and they behave differently according to the caste that it's they can you know they can do different things according to the caste that they're from so it's a very very picturesque uh interesting uh reality and then so for me like they they one common trait is that they do not assimilate with anything you know so like it's, it's their own reality they live everywhere they take what they can from everything but they do not assimilate and so like my music is a, has a little bit of the, uh, you know, c- characteristic. That's why I use the term. It's not used lightly as, oh, yeah. Right. No, I love things. that. I love yeah. that. But I got I got some pushback, though, because some people were like, and I mean, you're not going to get pushback no matter what. But um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So like, and then the folk part is because, uh, you know, even though sometimes I can get rock, but it's mostly like, you know, I like uh, traditional instruments and everything. And uh, so I like more the more acoustic uh, analog sound to things, so that's why I use the term folk. So I think it, that describes it. But uh, yeah, there's a lot in there, <laughs> a lot to unpack. <laughs> so let's talk about what you're gonna play for us. So I was thinking today I was gonna play one of my songs that I, one of the dearest songs to me. It's called Multitudes, and it's about. Um, I wrote this song in 2015, right before I released my album with the Late Saints, the band that I used to have, and. Um, I just made it into the cut. Like it was one of the two songs that we decided to add because it just came out. It was too much, too good not to put in. And it's become since then one of the songs that really triggered me. It's about the struggles. I feel like in Western societies, we're all um, really like struggling hard to try and place ourselves where we think we should be, Uh, which means sometimes economically, mentally, emotionally, and then everybody's always like somewhere feels like they should be somewhere else other than where they are. And then like, there's a little bit of like commentary uh, about the religions and the struggles that come from conflicting religions and everything. But also generally like all these multitudes that suffer trying to get themselves. And for some people in the song, it says some people actually have to struggle to get them out and themselves out of a situation where they're going to die. So like, you know, the struggle, but that doesn't make the struggle, doesn't make the struggle of other people less uh, relevant. You know, like I feel like in the Western society, our mental struggle is, is harsh. And then we make our lives impossible. And we're living right now. I feel like I'm starting to feel like I'm living in a matrix right now. It's just, it's incredibly challenging for me to see how, you know, harsh everything has become. And it doesn't need to be, you know, like, and, and then, so we... We struggle mentally, economically, and then some people really have to struggle for their lives. You know, in Europe, 
the refugee crisis is a reality oh, yeah. that has it's been huge. like you know i i used i used before the pandemic to tour europe uh, every year twice a year with this other singer songwriter is a folk punk singer songwriter from england james barbowen and um it was funny because i hosted him he was touring the us with a friend and i hosted him a friend of mine that was organized this show asked me if i could set him up for the night and uh, so i had, i had him at my place and we just like drank all night and we had a great night like talking playing music and then he said why don't you come on tour with me in the spring i said okay and then i went and we had a blast so we were out for a month we do this kind of like on foot uh tour and he he's been doing this for i think 20 plus years so he is in the diy circles wow. and we tour like the netherlands germany france uh, a little bit of italy not that much but and then um uh, what where else like uh, we went to oh uh, and then the czech republic oh yeah so we did, we do uh, and everything on foot like using uh, trains uh, public transportation is so much more efficient in europe you know they really yeah. capillary it can take you to little tiny villages and we played all sorts of reality from like big festivals to the smallest uh, squats to um, refugee centers and then touching firsthand the reality of these people that walked from Syria or just like to, you know, like, you know, okay, so then we'll talk about a struggle. You know, people that walked with their kids and, you know, they took their three-year-old from Syria on foot. And then, uh, you know, like it was very, very moving and, you know, like to see how lightly we go about our lives and all the problems that we have here but our governments create wreck havoc and devastation all around the world and people suffer people struggle and have to live harsh realities because of sometimes us even though it's not us but like you know the decisions right. that we you know go along with because we don't pay attention you know like we have, we're busy in our lives struggling hard to be better and like and become better and that's you know in in the United States there is also like this incredible drive to excellence and then to be a winner you know like uh, then that I, nobody knows what it really exactly means because mm. a person that works like 80 hours a week and doesn't have life for himself as a european looks like a loser to me but he's a winner here so yeah. like <clears throat> yeah it's just like you know it's like a lot Yeah. I tend to so please stop me at any time because I I, I tend to get sidetracked. <laughs> no no, so the song <laughs> the song going back going to the song. Fight. So yeah, so that's like um um that's this commentary and uh it's become an anthem like I recorded it with this brass section um but you know live I sometimes do it just with my voice doing the brass parts and everything and nice. it's like it's very and then my my friend James uh, the guy I tour with He asked me permission to cover my song in his latest album. That's awesome. And then so and then he made this punk folk punk version of my song <laughs> and he's like, "Dang, like it's like it's strange." But there is like some things that I then I say I listen to him and say, "Okay, I can also do it this way, like a little bit more like maybe tonight I'm going to do it like that way, like you know, more like a folk punk." Uh, I think that's like that's the ultimate compliment. Have someone do yes. your song. Yeah, yeah, no, we love we love each other's music. So like it was a big compliment for him. Like, you know, he really loved the song and uh it's like can I cover it in the album? I said, "Yeah, go ahead." And then it's funny to hear his voice singing my lyrics and just like, <laughs> "Wait, hold on." But well, you're here, the we'll first get... person to perform for us live, so we're okay. very very excited to have you perform yeah, live yeah, for let's, us. Yeah, yeah, no, can... this is super cool. We're totally set up here in the studio. Uh So what's what's the name of the tune again? Multitudes. Multitudes by Jacopo. Multitudes work out every day to become what they are not. Multitudes struggle every day just holding on to what they've got. Multitudes meander towards the mass chasing after a big dream. Multitudes end up drowning their own souls deep down in the mainstream. Multitudes love killing one another in the name of stupid gods. Thousand years have gone by, we're still falling for this pointless fraud. Is there anything we can do to stop the cyclic mess? Is there anything we can? I'm kind of losing up here. 
I might confess. Multitudes are marching to the drums of algorithmic mess. Multitudes live under constant threat of soulless drones and psychopaths. Multitudes cringe at the mere sight of a cute abuse pet. While they don't bat an eye and carry on in front of fellow humans falling, falling through the net. Multitudes love killing one another in the name of stupid God. Thousand years have gone by. We're still falling for this pointless fraud. Is there anything we can do to stop the cyclic mess? Is there anything we can? I'm kind of losing up here. I might confess. <laughs> Is there anything we can? I'm kind of losing up here. I might confess. So you have an interesting little location here in Germantown. You're, I mean, I'm not trying to disclose your exact location so that people converge on your house <laughs> or anything, but you've been hosting, um, I mean, you, you purchased a home, I don't know how long ago, and you mentioned that you do a lot of repair work. So mm-hmm. um, can you, I guess, tell us a little bit about that. You, you got this house when? I got the house in 2017. For me, like uh, I haven't lived in Italy. My house was a house, a country house outside of Torino, the last six years before I moved, I was living in a house that was pretty much the same exact replica of what I have here, just different style and whatever, but it had the woods in the back and and over time it had like really taken care of them. And so I said, okay. And it was a wreck. It was a triplex destroyed, but really destroyed. Like it was, it's been the biggest uh, endeavor they ever like uh, undertaken. You know, it's like, uh, it was like devastated. There was nothing to salvage in terms of like, you know, functioning. Uh, and then mm-hmm. I slowly, with time, I repurpose everything because that's what I like to do. I like to repurpose everything that I find. So all the materials, everything, and I completely renovated over the course of four years. Now I live on the on the first floor and I rent the other two floors. And um, but then once I took care of the house, I started ex- actually during the course of these four years, I also took care of the woods that were a dump. Mm-hmm. So like I've been like cleaning up the woods and slowly expanding from like uh, the jungle uh, aggressing the houses, I started pushing it back and back and back. Yeah. And in the, over the course of four years, now I, I was able, I've been able to push it back like 50 yards or more. And then now I host these parties where the woods have become 
you know, the focal point because people can spread and they can in the summer. I have enjoyed your woods. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I spent time out there the last and show you, you built had. an awesome was, stage on the back of your house. And... So that in, the, in the back, I built the stage because that was my intention all along. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. That song was beautiful. And um, everybody, you check them out. Um, are you playing anywhere coming up that we should know um, no, about? No, I don't have, uh, okay. right now I don't have any. I think I'm just going to let like, you know, 2021 fade away yep. and then like, you know, start thinking Roll <laughs> in and see. what sure. I want to do on 2022. Hopefully like things will reopen big time because it's like, I'm, I'm doing, I'm not doing virtual shows or stuff like that. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm good. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll see you around the neighborhood. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Look forward to the next house party. Yes. Yeah. The summer. There's a, I'm going to take a six months, uh, hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good plan. All right. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you, mm -hmm. Jacopo.